0: Mayo Clinic presents
1: Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds.
0: Welcome to the November Grand Rounds edition of Always On EM Podcast. My name is Venk Bellumconda. I'm one of the two co-hosts for this podcast, along with Dr. Alex Finch. We want to thank you for tuning in all year long and thank you to everyone who is following our show on the various platforms. Don't forget to check out the Raptor Trauma Share giveaway that's going on at Instagram at alwaysonem right now, or connect with us on Twitter or via email at alwaysonem at gmail.com. Today, I am thrilled to share a recording from a truly world-renowned speaker. One caveat, the audio file isn't the greatest in the very beginning, but stick with it as it gets cleaned up at roughly five minutes into it. The speaker is the one and only Dr. Victor Montori a true superstar of healthcare today, and he has an important challenge for us all in healthcare. In his grand rounds called On Care, he inspires us to rise up to meet the needs of the patients and community in a way that he highlights we are currently failing. Dr. Montori is the type of person that when he speaks, we are all inspired to listen, not just because he has a decorated career, which includes that he is director of the Knowledge and Evaluation Research Unit here at Mayo Clinic, co-director of the Center for Translational Science Activities, full professor of medicine with board certifications in internal medicine and endocrinology, not just because he is a recipient of several awards as a teacher and mentor and researcher, or that he is author to an astounding 640 peer-reviewed publications at this point, but because he is a passionate advocate for people. He routinely has listeners on the edge of their seats when he shares his stories and insights, and I know he has for me listening to this talk before. If you'd like to continue learning from Dr. Montori after this talk, I encourage you to check out his book called Why We Revolt, as it continues the themes that we are about to hear. In addition, you could check out the website for the organization that he co-founded, known as The Patient Revolution. The website is patientrevolution.org. As always, don't forget to like, comment, and follow our podcast for more amazing emergency medicine content. With that, Dr. Montori, you have the stage.
2: So again, uh, the my research unit, uh, uh, since inception, we decided not to take any for-profit funding from any corporation, uh, in part because our work is on shared decision-making guidelines and sort of thing, and we didn't want to offer an alternative explanation for for our recommendations. Um, I'm also chair of the board of the patient revolution. This is a nonprofit organization. And a few years back we published this book, why we revolt the patient revolution for careful and kind care. Some of the discussion today comes from this. This um, book does not, you know, I don't get any royalties from the book. it sells, uh, you know, my mom bought a bunch of copies and all that, but I, I, don't, I, don't, uh, I don't get any relatives, any if any they come go to the organization and I don't derive any personal income from the organization. Um, I mentioned that this is a conversation about care and um, the outside, I mean, for you it's every day, but for most folks on the outside, what care is and what, how it manifests in our lives uh, as professionals and the lives of our patients when they need us is something that perhaps people see on TV, but they don't fully realize. But it's, you know, when COVID hit and people had to show up without, without uh, personal protective equipment, there, there was a recognition, I think, broadly of the level of um, personal offering and vulnerability that is associated with truly caring for each other, and, which is in stark contrast with the uh, general um, sense of selfishness and, and uh, self-interest that appears to permeate our, our societies. And it's, it was a good reminder of how different our, our uh, profession is with respect to other professions uh, out there in its commitment to care. But one of the problems is that care is hidden behind some of the adjectives that we like to add to it. You know, sick care, health care, patient centered care, evidence based care, high value care. Those adjectives draw attention to themselves, and then care ends up being in the background. We don't spend a lot of time discussing what care truly is. So, care is a practice and, and a disposition, and, and it's a disposition towards noticing what is wrong with the other person. What, what needs to be uh, addressed. And that requires a presence, Mm -hmm. we need to pay attention. And we need to understand people's situations in high definition, not just in their biology, but also in their biography. And not not just in the needs that they have, but also what strengths they can bring to bear in trying to address their situation. Now, noticing is insufficient. People talk about empathy all the time. Eh, feel like the other person doesn't, is not gonna save many lives. I feel for you, you have a bullet. In your chest, I feel for, yeah, that's not gonna help them, right? You have, to, you have to respond. And the respond is what creates the possibility that this person's needs will be met. Now, this response does not necessarily mean providing all the answers, and it does not necessarily mean we respond the way we would respond. We have to respond in the person's terms, in what might be in their best interest. Care does not happen until you give it, and that requires competence which is you were trying to improve as a group earlier today, and compassion. And again, it's not completed until it's received, because when care is received is when we find out if our response was actually pertinent, adequate, and desirable. Now, care. one definition of care is make the, the world a, play, a better place to live in. And so that starts with self-care. Then it moves on to the care that we give our communities, our our neighborhoods, our society. You know, we we want to make our communities, our neighborhoods, our society, better places to live, better places to grow up. And we have to do the same thing for our planet. So the planet will be uh, not hostile to our uh, development. So care expands beyond what we think of in healthcare. Going back to healthcare, again, is noticing and responding. Noticing a problem, responding effectively. Now, I'm a diabetes clinician, and when I I approach patients, I like to think that I have only one reason to approach them, and that is with the intention to care. In many other situations, I find people sometimes approaching patients for other other reasons. Perhaps they want to improve the quality and reliability of their service. They want to improve the value and the economic performance of their services and other reasons. And that creates an alternative explanation as to why we are approaching people. Care requires that we only approach people with one intention, that is the intention to care. And in the case of my practice, as we repeatedly do this, we develop an enduring relationship. An enduring relationship that is really important because disappointment, which is very common in our practice, disappointment happens, patients can come back to that relationship to regroup and try again many of the patients with chronic conditions that you end up seeing in the emergency department arrive here simply because that relationship does not exist. It existed or got broken either by the uh, limitations in primary care settings or by the fact that many primary clinicians are no longer available. They're no longer there for the patients. And so you end up having people who have, uh, having disappoint- have re- disappointment results show up where care is available, and that's you. Now, there are a number of challenges in current healthcare that makes this very difficult. Uh, sometimes we're asked to see patients too fast or as a test result. We have a, you know, here we A1C of 10 as a statistic, a patient with diabetes in our community, or as, or as the medical record. We get the illusion that we know the patient if we can see their representation, their data on the medical record, their history in the medical record, their vitals and other things. Oh, we know the patient, we've never touched the patient, we've never seen the patient. The patient is nothing but a blur. And that creates a problem because we need to be responding to people. Now, here's Maria Luisa in a little bit sharper definition. But when you see her in this picture, you don't, you don't see a person that is health, made healthier by healthcare. Tons of healthcare on the table. She looks sad, you know, despondent, perhaps tired or overwhelmed. Now, why would that happen? Well, in part because some of the efforts to respond to Maria Luisa or blurry Maria Luisa is through guidelines, through targets. You, know, you must achieve uh, this target for, for instance, glucose control, or through the innovations that are associated with apps and other things that we're asked to be used. And most of these are designed to respond to the common biology across our patients. Patients have, you know, all diabetics have this problem. And so it's a common biology. Unfortunately, that forces us to respond or care for people like Maria Luisa. But that is not the job. Our job is to care for Maria Luisa. And that requires us to f- develop an understanding, not just of her biology, but also to her, of her biography. Not just to respond to that biological abnormality, but to respond in ways that understand where she's coming from and where she's going. And this allows us to, for instance, respond in ways that are made us aware of issues related to issues of inequities or disparities or discriminations that may affect the manifestation of disease, the way they're presenting, or how they are responding to our response to their care. If not, our care is generic. Now, we've asked patients with diabetes to uh, uh, tell us what is the work of being a patient send us pictures of this work. And so patients, of course, send pictures of the nutrition labels, right? They have to make sense of the math in these nutrition labels, and they have to connect the nutrition label of this food or that food, and definitely they're going to mix something and cook something delicious, right? And so they have to figure out what is in all of that. They have to use these glucometer devices, which... Not only are they sometimes challenging, but you know, insurance companies usually send patients, oh, here's a free one. It's a new one because they just made a new deal. Throw away all those little strips, get new strips, and learn to operate the new machine that we just sent you. And these machines have the same interface as those Casio watches from 1981, where if you press the button long enough, you start a stopwatch and the other one shines a light and you cannot really remember which one is what. That, that's how these, are, these guys are designed right? And so patients have to learn this and, and go to the pharmacy and get the strips and pay a lot of money for this. And on top of that, they have to check, you know, they have to use it, they have to check the sure, interpret their results and so forth. Most patients send us pictures like this, pictures of waiting, waiting to receive a phone call about a test result or, a, or an appointment or insurance uh, pre-authorization uh, or just waiting in the waiting room or waiting in the office or waiting for the doctor or somebody to come in and tell, tell them the good news or the bad news or whatever, examine them waiting is our way of telling patients, your time is not important to us, please hold, right? We hear that all the time, although it doesn't say that, but it implies it. Now, we don't see the work that patients do to be patients, And as a result, we feel, wow, my goodness, patients are the most, the phrase is the most underutilized resource in healthcare, so let's give them some work. And so we ask patients to come prepared for the consultation to uh, watch our educational video, to organize their information, to bring questions and be ready to ask new ones, to record the visits so they can review it at home at their own pace, to review the medical record, to make sure we haven't introduced any typos or mistakes, to communicate via the portal, don't use email or WhatsApp or any other things that will be too easy, to transmit their data from their Fitbit and other things. We're not gonna look at it that keeps them engaged, to self-measure, self-monitor, self-manage, manage their appointments, their prescriptions, their bills, their denials, their delays, To overcome illness, resource, and identity disadvantages, which basically means they have to convince you to believe them that they're actually sick, rather than seeking uh, painkillers, for instance, to keep their family and important others informed, to take care of significant others, and of course, do not forget to advocate for yourself and for others. And all of these are reasonable expectations, but we're asking all of these other persons we're supposed to be serving. We're asking all of these of sick people. So... Our healthcare is very overwhelming and burdensome. And if they don't do what we expect them to do, we label them as non-compliant. A label that is actually a sticky label applied to people, not to their situation, but to people's character. Maria Luisa is not taking personal responsibility. She doesn't want to get better. She's not following our advice. And we communicate that from one to the other such that Maria Luisa will not have a better shot when they meet one of our colleagues because our colleague has heard from us that this person is non-compliant. And that when somebody is seeking care to receive a label instead that denies them that care is actually cruel. So instead of that noticing and responding of care, what we have is this industrial care in which patients get processed. They're seen as nothing but a blur. The treatment that we offer is generic and burdensome and sometimes cruel. Now, this is not just financially unsustainable, but it's humanly unsustainable. 40% of our patients with chronic conditions are reporting that the healthcare demands placed on them cannot be supported anymore. 40% of the time we spend with patients is with our heads turned to the screen so we can click on the right spots and fill in the right places and complete the right documentation of care instead of caring. We interrupt patients within 11 seconds of the, when they're telling us why they're there. 11 seconds, that's like, how are you doing? I'll holding on for a second, why are you here? And uh, this is pre-pandemic, 40% of our colleagues, physicians, nurses are experiencing depersonalizations and symptoms of burnout. Stop survey, I think we'll put it at 34% this year here at Mayo. So I just put 40% because then you get to remember only one number. So human, you know, Healthcare without care is humanly unsustainable. Now, what's the way out of this? The way out of this is to ensure that when we are present in healthcare, when we uh, manage, when we lead healthcare, we focus everything that we do with one primary objective, and that is to care. That should be the reason we come to work, as a reason all our procedures, all our reviews, everything that we do is oriented towards care and caring better, to noticing and respond well. This re- requires, and this will be very interesting uh, to hear what you think of this, but this requires an unhurried conversation. I don't, I'm not saying a slow, long chat. I'm saying an unhurried conversation. You know, something that it's a conversation that has a pace, the pace of care, not too slow where you waste precious minutes, but not too too fast that you don't get to appreciate the real situation you're trying to respond. Unhurried conversations in which you can appreciate the person's situation in high definition and co-create with them if they're they're able, co-create with them a response that makes intellectual, practical, and emotional sense to them. Because at least in my area of work, most of that plan, they will have to implement themselves. So it has to make intellectual sense to them in a sense that I understand the problem to be this, I can see how that solution addresses that problem. Emotional sense is addresses my fears and, and my, my trepidations. And practical sense, I can implement it in my life without totally disrupting it. Now, how do we achieve that? One of the methods of care is shared decision-making. Now, shared decision-making is something that our group has uh, partner with uh, colleagues in in this department to try to implement and it means it's a diagnostic conversation it means understanding what aspect of your situation demands action and what is the action that the situation demands and it's an iterative process so back and forth that helps us identify a, a response that makes intellectual emotional and practical sense there are a number of of things about shared decision making for instance A space that respects that we're going to have a conversation about this now. In other words, no distractions. This is a prototype office that was built for this. You can see no distractions. You can see the semicircular table that indicates that we're going to be equidistant from the information which is in the middle and we'll be working shoulder to shoulder. A number of things that we put in the space to signal the function of that space. Perhaps the availability of tools that help patients uh, participate better. And when we've done randomized trials trying to ascertain the value of doing this in practice we found the usual things you know patients participate and love it but more interestingly when we started we were told clinicians will not be excited about shared decision making what we've noticed in our trials is that the most consistent finding across settings and all the trials we've done is that clinician satisfaction goes up because when you s- slow down to actually engage with the patient you're no longer dealing with a blurry patient, you're able to connect, understand the psychology of the person you're with and receive, uh, not only give the care, but receive the feedback of your care, which is actually uh, a boost to get you going for the next patient. Um, We found that shared decision-making is particularly helpful for people that come into the visit with some challenges in terms of understanding their condition or the possibilities of treatment. So it's a bit of a leveling playing field for vulnerable populations. Contrary to what people talk about, we have never been able to demonstrate that shared decision-making improves adherence to therapy, a clinical outcomes, or to lower costs. And contrary to what most people expect, it doesn't take systematically more time than other forms of care. So well, how is that possible? You're explaining all these pros and cons or all these alternatives. How is it that it doesn't take more care? Because you know we've video recorded thousands of encounters in, in intervention trials where we have control groups. So we look at the control group and what people do. I and mean, it's amazing what we tell patients about their condition and about the treatments. For instance, we did a study once on osteoporosis, and so our our clinicians well, uh, Mrs. Jones, your T score is minus two point two. Let me explain what that means. Yeah. So they draw a normal curve, and then they put a median, and then they put one standard deviation, two standard. Explain the statistics to the patient. You know, this is like a two score minus 2.5. There's 2.5 standard deviations. Like, you know, what do you want me to do? I don't know, take the phosphorus, right? And then move on. And so all that time, exp- and that's when they don't explain the, the physiology of osteoblasts and osteoclasts, right? And so what are we trying to do there? You know, maybe impress the patient, pre- pretend that we know something. I don't know. But all that time can be used differently and uh, the the time effect is the same. And instead of non-compliance, we can actually begin to label not the patient, but the situation in a more productive way. And I think we're all familiar with insufficiency. And sometimes when things are not happening, we can make a diagnosis of an imbalance of workload and capacity. The workload we are asking patients to do exceeds the capacity of the patient, the family to implement that work. And as opposed to non-compliance, all of a sudden, you can imagine, you can begin to imagine what you can do about this, right? Wow, if the workload exceeds the capacity, I can reduce that workload or I can boost that capacity. All of a sudden, you have like a syndromic thinking. You can actually do something about this. So let's understand first what the capacity comes from. We already discussed what the, where the workload is. A sense of purpose. In my practice as a, as a diabetologist, a key question sometimes ask, I ask patients is, what are the sources of joy in your life? And it's amazing how many times patients cannot answer that question. I mean, the occasional patient says, well, I play golf, which is really sucks, right? If you think about the answer. But, you know, sometimes people refer to their, their grandkids and all those things. And, you know, it's great, right? Golf, that's a source of joy in your life. I mean, come on. Um, but, but, but I know, but, you know, yeah, it's crazy. So, um, it, it, but, but sometimes people have no answer. And so if, if you have no source, you know, why would, why would you get up in the morning and try to check your sugars and, you know, leave a conference early and all these sorts of things, right? So it's terrible. Um, sense of resilience, right? Um, go ahead. <laughs> um, <laughs> the sense of resilience, right? So, in not, you know, it's not that resilience, like do some yoga and get better about yourself, but the fact that you will be disappointed by outcomes and you need to keep going. The, the notion of literacy, again, not just understanding the instructions or the wayfinding in the hospital, but knowing what, is, what, what the instructions really mean and what exceptions you can make. You know, the patient that, that gets instruction, you should take this pill on an empty stomach and just took the other pill. Should I wait two, three hours before the next pill? Should I take them both at the same time? Does that count as an empty stomach? being able to sort that out, which might be very simple to you, is one of the things that actually prevents people from adhering to therapy. Having adequate bandwidth. If you're very worried about your financials, you might be thinking about that and everything else kind of leaves your consciousness. And so it makes it very hard for you to focus, for instance, on your health, physical health. If you have a bad knee and you have to go and catch the bus, It's going to take you a long time to get there. So you only schedule a few things in your day because you know you cannot move fast enough. Mental health, you know, you're depressed, you wake up and you're moving through molasses. You know, so how many things can you get done in the day? Financial health, if you're poor, all all the capacity you have is your own. You can't hire capacity to help you, for instance, to complete other tasks in order for you to be a good patient. Social uh, isolation, again, reduces your capacity to yourself. So what can we do? We can use shared decision-making to prioritize the workload. We can use the platinum rule, which is do unto others the way they would like to be done unto themselves, and which basically requires you to be curious and work with them in figuring out the treatment. We should ban medical errands. Um, The best example I know is, it used to mean this might be before most of your time, but it used to be that we had stationesses uh, around the campus. Station S was a desk, and so when patients come in and they were asked to make a urine sample or a stool sample, they'll come into the facility, they drop their bag with their stool or urine sample, and then they go for their appointments. And then the lab had some guy that would walk around and pick up all the bags and take them to the lab fresh, and then process those samples, right? Well, somehow we decided that that was probably not very efficient, and we asked patients, "No, no, bring the samples to the lab, right?" That's a, that's a, for our campus. That's a medical errand because we need the sample fresh, and we need the patient to actually do the work of bringing the sample to the lab. Now, the lab is in the, downtown is in the Hilton building. Patient enters through the, through the gondola door. That's like two and a half blocks or three blocks. They're running late. They come to see my, me, I'm, I'm working with them and I'm looking, oh, you didn't get your microalbuminuria check. Where is your, your oh, urine your sample is sitting right next to you in the couch. Yeah, I didn't get around to deliver it. I'll deliver it after the visit. Now we have a delay. Now I have to follow up on the results. Now we have additional work. Giving patients medical errands is a bad idea, it's a bad efficiency. At lean, you know, people are very excited about lean and reducing the waste in healthcare. Usually those efforts finish at the door. When you look at the origin of lean, there was lean production, which is what we tend to do, but there was also lean consumption. And we don't spend as much time reducing the waste that we transfer to patients and families. The digital transformation, we're all very excited about this, about digital monitoring, and all the things that we, we think it might help us with patients, but a lot of those apps are designed by healthy people who have no idea how those apps are going to land in the lives of people who are chronically ill, who are uh, isolated, and so forth. And so a lot of them are very, very helpful, but they just have to be designed with the, with the consumer of those products in mind. Uh, There are things that help us elevate the capacity of people. Capacity coaching is a form of health coaching that was developed here at Mayo that supports people's capacity to do chronic work. Self-management training early in the trajectory of chronic disease could be very helpful. Palliative care. A lot of these patients don't sleep well, have chronic pain, have difficulties. And so our palliative care colleagues have expertise in this area, but we tend to use them usually at the end of life when we could, they could make a huge impact on capacity in patients with chronic conditions. Psychotherapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy can all boost capacities in those functional areas. And then social work to mobilize the community resources, community assets that can be mobilized to help people support the work of being a patient. Thinking in those terms is what we call minimally disruptive medicine. It's advancing the goals of the patient by minimizing the healthcare footprint on their lives. More recently, this has been put together by an international group of patients, clinicians, social scientists, designers, and other people in this Making Care Fit manifesto. And when the key part of this manifesto reads, patients and clinicians must collaborate in designing care plans that maximally respond to each patient's unique situation and priorities, while minimally disruptive their lives and loves. And this is, this is in contradiction with if you have a patient with diabetes, make sure your A1C is 7% or less. Make sure you start with this medicine. Then you we know, it's a bunch of technical recommendations and guidelines that we have that ignore, for instance, people's loves and the protection that those loves deserve. And that's on the clinical side. But then we have the way we organize healthcare systems. And this is a great picture I got from, from Twitter. I don't know where this was taken, but people were asked to stand in line for a long time and people just put their shoes there instead of standing themselves in line. But again, this is one ways in which our organizations just tell people that we do not respect their time, energy and attention. So what might we do with that? Well, we have to improve the dependability of the services. Rethink the number and complexity of those services to make sure that in in the interest of redundancy, sometimes we put all these things, but those, those redundancies make it very likely that systems will fail. Sometimes what we have to do is eliminate uh, parts of the system, part of the redundancy that we put in place, and that might um, reduce the workload and restore the agency of people. Um, It might be helpful to improve the simplicity of those services, encouraging the clarity of their purpose and the ease of navigation. And I think for our purposes, the electronic medical record is one of those kind of yin and yangs that make our life a lot easier in many ways, and in other ways it, it screens for simplicity and then civility in our services. You know, services are respectful to patients and to clinicians, which will restrain the moral meaningfulness of the work that we do in healthcare. Uh, so many times the, this, this, the way things are organized do not recognize the, the humanity of those uh, who are called to care. And so we what I'm calling here is for a healthcare that is based on solidarity and, and not on greed on integrity and not on regulations and and documentation, on elegance and not on efficiency. So think of elegance as as what a ballerina or a gymnast does. you You don't see in the movements any waste, but also they keep to the rhythm of the music of the performance, right? So there is no waste, but there is no haste. And I think in medicine, we should be looking for that up, that elegance. The founder of the Mayo Medical School, uh, Dr. Pruitt, um, wrote a, a piece called "The Margin of Elegance" and spoke about how uh, healthcare had been so focused on the economic margin that it had lost the possibility of, un, you know, he didn't say it unhurried, but the possibility of unhurried conversation, unhurried work—a work that was indeed elegant—and he called for moving from a focus on the margin, economic margin, to the margin of elegance. Now, what's striking about that—that that, uh, That speech is the date, 1977. We need to make sure that our care is for this patient, not for patients like this, that is minimally disruptive of their lives and loves, and that over time, patients and clinicians, particularly those of us who have the good fortune of working in chronic care, can develop relationships with our patients, relationships that often our patients and ourselves call relationships of love. And that's the that's the goal of the organization, the Patient Revolution, that that our, uh, our group is um, leading, is trying to take all this content, this body of knowledge and to creating a community. So we have patient revolution fellows from all over the world that are focusing on creating moving healthcare from industrial healthcare towards careful and kind care for everyone and develop educational opportunities and partnership with organizations to achieve this goal. So hopefully we will we will do that and it will be interesting. And I don't know, maybe that's part of our discussion. What is the scope of work of careful and kind care in emergency settings. And and I hope that this fast and brief conversation uh, begins to spark in you the interest of how do we move away from industrial processes of care towards careful and kind care for everyone. So I'll stop here and uh, welcome your questions and comments.
3: So I guess the biggest thing um, when I hear this talk is time with the patient and ER is inherently not a lot of time so that, I feel like, is one of the biggest barriers. Um, any extra thoughts on how to improve that time?
2: Yeah, well, I'm actually quite interested in your thoughts about, about time, because you're, you're the expert, right? And then trying to use uh, the time uh, uh, elegantly. Um, I think that, um, so one of the, when I go and speak to other audiences that are not emergency medicine audiences, and I talk about shared decision-making, for, to give you an example, Oftentimes, that's the question that comes up. well, you can't do that in primary care. You can't do that in emergency medicine. It turns out that some of the best projects we've done have been in primary care and in emergency medicine, right? The chest pain choice decision aid that was actually trialed uh, for the first time in this, in this very uh, unit and then trialed in multiple emergency departments across the nation is one example, you know, led by Dr. Eric Hess. Project on otitis media that has been done for uh, kids presenting with otitis media was actually developed and piloted, and it's going to be evaluated in, mo- in a multi-center trial of emergency departments. So, how can we? You know, it's not f- it's not for the gunshot wound. Like, Sarah, uh, you seem to have a hole in your chest. I wonder what your values and preferences are regarding our treatment. That would be that would be silly, you know, and wasteful and uh, dangerous and ineffective. So the issue is judgment, you know, and how do you use uh, time? Often time is considered a resource, right? And so it's now allocated as if it was a resource. But time is it's tricky. It's not just a resource, right? Um, you recognize it when you are with someone you really like and you're having a nice conversation and then you both realize, oh my goodness, time just flew. Where did time go, right? So, so you know, it, it's something different. It's, it, it's also the, not just the length of time, but also the depth of time. And uh, and you can you know with expertise I, I bet you that you can in one two three four minutes you can make assessments you can notice things that will take ten minutes to so somebody that is or fifteen minutes somebody who is untrained right so your noticing can be done very quickly you can be very elegant at asking two or three questions instead of thirty five and and you will be very very careful at knowing when to interrupt you'll be looking around for clues not just on the patient but in surrounding the patient and the family members and the way people are talking to, all of a sudden you become att- you know, hyper-attuned hyper- to these features because they save you time. But in that two minutes, your ex- experience of time is way longer, even though it's the same two minutes, that for somebody who is absolutely anxious, nervous, you know, and, and these, these two minutes are just passing you know, like, a, like a movie in front of their eyes right? And so you, you've experienced, I mean, am I, am I, is this, is this, am I making stuff up or is this something? Um, you think you're making stuff up. You seem, you seem very skeptical about that. You, yeah, you tune off when I said that people could not have joy enjoying golf. And I, I noticed, it. I noticed that. <laughs> does that, does that, uh, so it's a, it's a tricky bit. And I think we don't, we don't protect our time and our attention well enough we allow for machines to beep computers to alert us you know all sorts of distractions when in those you know 4 or 5 minutes you want your you want your presence to be 100% we don't protect that very well in many settings i don't know what you do here for that but in many settings we just don't respect that enough uh, because processing becomes more important
0: Dr. Montori, there's a question online. How do the concepts of effective teamwork impact the perception of care by the patient? Is this an area related to the time issue that you mentioned in the ED?
2: Yeah, so I can speak of that in relation, for instance, to chronic disease, where um, there's been the illusion that patients can develop relationships with the brand or with the clinic or with the organization. And so then the task of the organization is Oh, here's a patient with diabetes, for instance. Let's have them meet a clinician that understands diabetes, and that's all our job. So they can just meet, and then once they get together, they can do their thing. Uh, without recognizing that this patient has already explained their particular situation five times to five different clinicians. And yet, once again, they have to explain what's going on to, a, to the a sixth one. Because we got the illusion that because we're part of the same team, it's, we're interchangeable humans are not interchangeable. Patients are not interchangeable. This is not yet another patient with, this is Mrs. Jones. And clinicians are not interchangeable. I know it will be help us with efficiency tremendously if, if it doesn't matter who the, the pilot on the, on the flight is, right? But it turns out that it does. When it comes to care, it actually matters who you meet. Right? It actually matters. In fact, you can pretend it doesn't until the day, for instance, you interview for a job, and then you want to convince everybody that you are the special one, right? Right. So so it matters, right? It matters tremendously who you are. In, and in a situation where we now recognize trauma, healthcare-induced trauma, where patients have experienced trauma in previous healthcare situations, and they're now trusting you to come in, to come in for healthcare. They've been avoiding, avoiding now they have to come in. They come in they had traumatic experiences before and you're coming in and they find themselves having to repeat their story again to a stranger. It, it causes another trauma to them. That is cruelty, right? And so we have to be careful that our, that our team-based approaches do not create this illusion of interchangeability that ignores the identity, both of the clinician and the healer mm-hmm. and of the patient. It creates, an, now it says a tremendous challenges because I mean, it improves access. It, cre- it has a ton of benefits. But, you know, you know those. I want to alert you of the, the, the downsides. The notion that you can, that you are interchangeable is highly, highly problematic.
1: With your foundation or otherwise, have you had um, involvement of patients that tell you, this is what I would like my encounter to look like? Like, So you've mentioned a lot of, like that long list of, of burdens that you got short of breath on at the end of <laughs> reciting them, right? It's a huge list. So where where from for example from the emergency department i mean we've often focused on the patient experience of knowing what's happening and when their results are coming through you know we've posted on my ed board kind of thing and so on so we've approached those things like just awareness and situational awareness for the patient what would in your experience what patients would say in this kind of a situation encounter where everything is kind of chaotic and traumatic for them, and they filled with anxiety and so on. They're frustrated, whatever. What do you think patients would value the most?
2: Well, I, I don't know, right? And I think that it is important that we, we uh, try things out. So we rely too heavily, in my opinion, on interviews and surveys to understand what people would want. You do not know what you would want, but you know how you felt. You know what things make you feel. You know how was the experience. And, and I think understanding, you know, and, and you can do, you know, with enough volume, you can do a lot of experiments. Should the lights be white or should they be yellow? Well, it depends on what you're doing, but if nothing's happening, is there a dimmer? And is it, should be warm or cold? Should be, and there are a number of things you can probably guess, and you're probably going to guess right, but a number of things boil down to asking the patient, you know, what, what matters to you in this moment right now? And then if people had that have survived, perhaps asking, you know, what, what what parts of this? How would you have made this experience better? We, for some reason, we shy away from the open-ended question about how would you have made that better. Uh, instead, we ask them to complete uh, numerical skills. and we had we get. It's almost like you know, you go to a party and uh, you you come home and say, "Oh, how was the party?" Oh, it's uh, three. Mm-hmm. So, you're like, oh, so not a ten? No, three. So, w- why not a ten? Well, and now you start getting a little bit of the detail. It's in the narrative. It's in the story that you actually get the actionable stuff. So a lot of our satisfaction service, we get scores and, you know, it doesn't give us the actionable information that tells us this is what we need to improve. I mean, thinking about the review you just did, you know, it was not like, oh, that's a three, you know, situational awareness 2.5. No, no, it was actually, look, she said this and the other guy did that. And it was a story. You create a narrative. It's the narrative that contains the information and allows you to remember it and makes it actionable. So um, and then the other thing is the notion. I don't have an alternative language, but the notion of patient experience makes it sound like the amenities, right? It was how's the resort working out for you on your vacation through healthcare? You know, and nobody vacations through healthcare. This is a place they rather not visit. And asking about their experience makes it uh, look like it's veneer, you know, like it's about the you know background music and the you know all the but you know, what is care, you know, is being noticed and being responded to in ways that advance your situation? How well did we do that? And what could have, what could have, what is it that we could have done to make it better? And that's a question you can ask in the inner city, in the looks emergency department, anywhere. And, and you probably can respond to most of the deficits without investing a lot of money, because a lot of it is just really can you see me? Can you listen to me? Can you pay attention to me? Can you get to understand my situation? And can I feel that you're responding to me uh, in, in spending enough time with me to actually feel that, I, that, in fact, you are responding to me? And sometimes that doesn't require a lot of amenities. It just requires the possibility of slowing time down for this person. You know, It just requires the
0: possibility of care. Dr. Montori, online, <clears throat> there was a question. The
2: only the online questions are they shorter answers or is it the same kind of answers that
0: it's, it's here uh, It's a mix. It's a mix. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, they're not numerical answers. How about that? Uh, yeah, it's a five. Uh, so yeah. yeah. There was a question about how we get, or a comment that we we've built the system based on how we train people, hmm. and so how do you think we should reshape education in healthcare? Well, that's to... a question for the educators,
2: right? I mean, so the educators, the educators have a really tough, tough job, right? So do they create people who will work phenomenally well in industrial healthcare, right? Do you create, do you, do you train people that will, that will just fit perfectly as a cog in the wheel, right? Do you, you want perfect processing of patients and you get like really great scores on everything and you'll be hired and you'll be phenomenal, right? Because you just fit perfectly in the or do you create change agents? People that ask questions. So, should we be treating people this way? Should we be doing it this other way? Should we prioritizing this over that? Um, most of organizations um, develop, that are not very advanced develop a negative reaction to people that ask that kind of question. But if you go back in the history of the Mayo Clinic, the first administrator, Har, uh, uh, Harwick, uh, wrote a little book. And I don't know if anybody has, has read it. It's just a little tiny book. And um, he uh, was very efficient. Um, and um, uh, in this book, he talks about the loyal rebels and how organizations need people who would challenge the assumptions of the organization, not because they want to undermine it, but because they want to see it flourish. And so the, the, the educator has this challenge. Do you prepare you know students and trainees to perform beautifully in the system as is? Or do you prepare people to challenge the system as is to try to make it better, to try to make it care better? And they're, sometimes they're the same, and sometimes they're different. And that requires a significant uh, judgment and resp- a sense of responsibility as an educator about what you should do. If, you're, if you train everybody to be loyal rebels, perhaps nobody will hire them. You know? And so you're maybe making, giving, you know, making a disservice. It's a real challenge. So I, I don't have, is that, was it your question? And you so, said asking for a friend? No,
0: no I, <laughs> I am wondering, I didn't know how to answer it for sure, but uh, it did come anonymously through. Oh, our anonymous. chat. so that's convenient. Okay. Yeah. Yes, go ahead.
3: One of the most challenging things for me is redirecting a patient in a way that I'm not interrupting and in a way that they still feel heard. And in your experience, I'm wondering if you have advice for that.
2: It's very, very hard. Um, the The question is related to redirecting a patient. So you have You want to go in a particular direction. You want to understand, for instance, what's going on and so forth. And the patient is filled with tangents, right? And it's very hard to understand uh, where to go. Um, People are very, you know, we are, so evolutionarily, I don't know if that's the word, um, uh, our brains are actually designed for joint decision-making, right? So, So we were at some point in our, you know, in our groups, you know, going through the tundra and is the water over there? The water over there, and the leader will say, "Water's well, over there," and then immediately the rest of the people go, hey, "Are you sure? How do you know? How about over there?" And so we are designed to challenge and ask questions and so forth. Eventually, if the if the if that scrutiny uh, survives, uh, so that direction survives the scrutiny, we go in that direction for water. So we've always made decisions as a group. It's um, in emergency medicine and in other areas. There's been a lot of work on biases and heuristics of making decisions, but all of this tests people's brains in isolation, not in groups, right? So you not only need the patient to tell you the story, but you need the patient to to help you understand and and get the story right. So is this really what you mean? Is this really what happened? No, no, no. Is this other way and so forth? So redirecting is not just getting efficiently to the story, but it's also constructing an appreciation of What is the situation here? What is going on here? And what aspect of that situation requires action? And you need to have agreement with your patient, unless the patient is, you know, at extremist, but you have to have agreement with the patient that that's the situation that requires action. You know, some patients come in very sheepishly, very afraid of what you would do to them. You know, particularly if they had bad experiences of coming in before. And they might give you one complaint, but that's not really the complaint. It's this other complaint. And by the way, I had chest pain yesterday. And now you got to the complaint, right? So you may want to go there fast, but at the same time, it will only happen when you, when you they trust that you are actually listening and you are going to respond in ways that are not going to hurt them further. So it's tricky. You want to get there faster, but too fast, and you are not. You arrive at a place you want to be without the readiness to be in that place with that. So I, I hate the term art of medicine because it suggests that there is some that some people are very inspired in what they do and you will never be able to accomplish that unless you, on the other hand, if you think of art as a series of practices, it comes with experience, it comes with practicing. And a lot of the practicing is looking at your senior uh, people and see hmm, how do they do it. And you'll see a lot of bad examples and learn from those and a few good ones and you learn from those and then trying things out until you develop your own sense. People say that if you stay quiet long enough, people eventually will get there and sometimes get there faster than if you keep interrupting. Is that true? Is that true for you? And so you need to probably test that out and figure out how long, how long of a wait is too long, but it's usually longer than you're willing to tolerate, which is usually shorter than the actual time that has elapsed. I didn't mean to put you on the spot with the golf stuff, but go ahead. You no, know. oh, no, it's fine.
4: I was probably asking for it anyways. Um, so as a learning physician or a physician in training, Trying to get efficient with the time, asking questions and trying to be like efficient, but not being hurried I'm trying to make sure I'm addressing the patient's concerns in a manner. It requires some like kind of with practice, you need feedback in order to grow from that practice. How do you suggest I'm getting a sense of this feedback? Because I feel like in a lot of situations, like the one you just mentioned earlier, where it's, true complaint was chest pain, but you didn't find that out until you got through the first two complaints. It'd be very easy just to assume that the first complaint was the right complaint, but you think you did the right job, sent the patient off the way, but the patient's now unhappy with what happened, felt like the things were never addressed well. Me on the other hand, feel like, felt like I did a great job.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, so you're asking how do you know, how are you gonna get feedback for that? Um, it's spooky, scary how early we are left alone with patients. Right, it's very spooky right? Because you would, what you would like is you would like to be observed a little bit longer, right? Maybe the last time, it's actually really scary because in some practices, you will never be observed again after your, your clerkship, right? And so you'll be like, you know, 20 years into practice. I mean, I'm trying to remember when was the last time I was observed with a patient. It, it must have been by a, by a student, you know, that is coming to rotate with me. Maybe they watch, you know, something. But for the most part, I have an unsupervised practice so how do I learn? So there's a, a nice piece from Matul Gawande about he being you know, a, a surgeon and bringing in a coach, uh, essentially a retired surgeon to come and operate with him with, only with the purpose of watching him operate and, and give him at the end tips on how did he treat the people uh, in the OR and how did he do it and so forth. He says, you know, if LeBron James is a coach, why can't I have a? I I mean, you have to be a Harvard surgeon to actually use that analogy, right? But, you know, <laughs> but he did it, right? He's, and so he's like, if he can have a why can't I have coach? Why shouldn't I have a coach, right? So similarly, you want to be, you know, best eating guy ever, right? How are you going to get there without a coach? And you say, and you're realizing, oh my goodness, I'm playing by myself. Not only I don't have any teammates, you know, because some, most of the time you're on your own, but you also have no coach. Good luck to you, right? That sucks. And so you have to then observe the model of training. What's, what's up with this model of training? Why are they leaving us alone this way? Why does it rely on us coming back and telling our, our faculty what we observed and what we said? Is that our accurate account? Why are we not recording every interaction and then going back to some selected ones with a perceptor to go through them? And in some practices they do that. So there's might be some innovations in there somewhere that allow you for still efficient care If you think about it, the only reason you really don't do it is because processing, right? You have to keep access and you have to keep moving. Uh, But there might be, and the preceptors, I'm sure, have a bunch of uh, tricks and tips that they have to give just-in-time feedback that is very efficient and is just-in-time in in a way that that coaches you into into being good. That's how this program generates really good professionals. But it's actually really striking that once you're released into the wild, that's it. Right. And, and, and whatever performance you have, price is going to decline without adequate coaching. And yet. No coaching. right? So it's actually quite interesting. So I think it's an interesting question for you to think about, you know, what happens during training, but also what happens after training and how do you keep your edge? Going to a CME course in Hawaii eh, doesn't cut <laughs> I mean, even when you're golfing, right? That swing is that. I don't know, perhaps, I don't know
0: if you, the faculty wants to say something about that question. Or... No? I, it's a thought-provoking question for me. I, I haven't thought about it, but I, I will be thinking about it.
3: I, I think that, that the direct observation uh, when it goes both ways, you need to be observed more doing the things not interrupting doing those things, and you need to observe us with some of those same things to, to learn. Uh, and and we, we don't take enough time to do that direct observation, behind the glass wall, watching the interaction, and then giving you that feedback. We don't have glass walls here, but we could come in the room and quiet. Uh, we're trying to be efficient and let you go see that, and we'll do other stuff at the same time. And, uh, it, and that's something, as a learner, you just need to ask for hey, would you come in? And we do this during the traumas and medical resuscitation because we're standing there, but we don't do it in the vast majority of the I would say, more complicated interactions. Um, the, the very sick patients are actually often a little bit more straightforward than the not so sick patients.
2: They have a technical solution to their problem oftentimes, right? So I have I have one more minute. I have to go at two, but maybe there's one more one more uh, question. Go ahead. Yeah, the guy with the microphone is right next to you. Okay. So
1: my question is, um, I feel as though, and I'm one of the new positions, new interns, so you know, obviously I'm still learning, but I feel as though uh, listening to this lecture, my patients at the beginning of my shift probably get a lot different care than the patients at the end of my shift. So how do you build your stamina? And, um, you know, you see a lot of things throughout the shift that may be kind of taxing on you emotionally. How do you build your stamina so that at the end of your shift, you're given the same care, the same time, the same emotion to the patients that you gave at the beginning of your shift?
2: Yeah, that's impossible, right? And, um, and, and, uh, you know, it's a, because that means you either have to be made of ice, right? And so things or Teflon, right? So things just you know just slide around you and you don't don't touch you, or you're wearing your heart in your sleeve and everything, you know, you know, it's like by the time you're done, you're balling and it's a disaster, right? And you need your patient need you to be noticing and responding. And if you're noticing and responding to your own feelings all the time, you're not available, right? So there's there's a uh, there's a challenge. Now, the thing is, how do you take care of yourself, to take care of each other, right? So one thing that you do in the emergency, as far as I can tell, unless you're in a very remote place, is you work with other people. You work with, you know, if you're a physician, you work with nurses, you work with technicians. You know, if you're a nurse, you have your technician, the nurse, your physician, you know, so students, you know, it, usually there's more than one person. And I think one commitment that we have to do if we want to care for the next patient is we have to take care of each other. And so organizations have to take care of the people that take care of the patients, and we as individuals we have to take care of each other if we want to be ready for the next patient. And that re- requires that you not only do review cases of serious but review cases of end of life discussions, review cases, you know, review cases of, of difficult, uh, you know, the redirection issues or. Uh, somebody asking for uh, pain medicine, and and or people coming in with uh, in in, um, in Florida um, uh, withdrawal, and and you're trying to figure out what the legal and the right thing to do is under conditions of severe stress, and then you resolve it. You have to be able to go and talk to somebody, and say, "I just went through this, even if it's a three five minute conversation, but something that puts your mind at ease and resets you to the extent that you can. I don't think you can, but to the extent that you can." to be ready and available for the next person. And so part of your duties then, if you are on, is not only
3: to take care of the
2: next person that comes in with an emergency, to but to take care of the people
3: that are with you that
2: night, that,
3: make sure that is ready for the next
2: To take care of the next person. So again, the, the duty of care as a an ideology it requires us to make the world a better place to live for everybody in our jobs, in our lives, for the environment. When it comes to healthcare, care, we need to be operating at the highest level of care. And that means we just don't provide or offer the best possible care for the next patient technically, but we also take care of ourselves and take care of people that are with us on the same shift. And so I think that's, that's the, I think you can give the same care at the beginning and at the end, but you can mitigate that drop simply by having your tribe around you, uh, lifting you up, supporting you, uh, refueling you, and, um, and, and making sure that you are physically, emotionally, intellectually ready to care for the next patient. I, I think if if you can promise that to each other at the beginning of the shift, I think your ability to care for the next patient will
0: go up. Well. I've heard that talk now several times in different locations, and each time I come away inspired to be better, even if the ways in which to do so are still being defined, the inspiration will drive that innovation. Please consider continuing the journey by reading Dr. Montori's book, Why We Revolt, or visiting his organization's website, patientrevolution.org. As always, come back on the first of each month for new emergency medicine perspectives, and on the 14th of the month, for another Grand Rounds recording from Mayo Clinic Emergency Medicine. Please like, comment and follow us on all your favorite platforms and be sure to tell your colleagues to tune in as well. We will be back with you on December 1st. Happy Thanksgiving and keep on rising. The Always On EM Podcast.
1: Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds.